Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, I'm speaking today with Guy Rafa, heard previously on the podcast in episode 183, where we had a conversation about his book, Dante's Bones, How a Poet Invented Italy. Guy is Associate Professor of Italian Studies at the University of Texas, and among other achievements, has created the brilliant and wonderful Dante World's website. Guy, welcome back to Historically Thinking. Thank you so much, Al, for having me back. And I should just say, as you know, I'm kind of on sabbatical this year, uh, thanks to <laughs> an NEH fellowship, which means, well, there are two things. One, one, I miss teaching, <laughs> and so I'm really glad to uh, have an opportunity today to talk to you about uh, you know, teaching sort of a Dante class. Um, I really miss the, the energy of it. Uh, but the second thing is uh, just a shout out to the NEH. I mean, you know, this is a public scholars uh, fellowship program. I think they began it in 2016. And uh, if I understand correctly, part of my, my job description uh, is to be a public humanist and so to participate in events like this. So uh, double thanks for having me on. Well, it's uh, great. Uh, you are actually one of the better um, publicists for uh, Historically Thinking on Twitter. You're better than me. Um, and it's very kind. Um, so I, I want to... Um, I wanted to have this, and this is a this serves as a mini episode, something a new departure. Uh, we're following up on the long the long conversation I did with Daniel Willingham on, on comprehension. So this is going to be a on our website. Um, we'll we'll drop this as a bonus episode, but also will be on the website as a resource uh, which will accompany uh, eventually. I would imagine uh, twelve conversations about historical thinking, and then lots of little mini conversations. We're imagining there's, there'll be about forty eight different conversations about aspects of, of historical thinking. And this was about comprehension, and it struck me that there was really no one better to talk to uh, than you, uh, since you study and teach a notoriously difficult poet. Um, and I know you've given a lot of thought to that. And could you just describe, I mean, some of the different people that you've taught Dante to? And then we can talk about how you introduce the complexity of Dante to these very different types of students. Thanks so much, Al. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great place to start. So I am incredibly fortunate because, I, as you mentioned, I, I teach at the University of Texas, a, a large public uh, school uh, institution um, uh, with students coming from many, many different uh, areas uh, into my Dante classes. And I get to teach different types of Dante classes. So I'd say in a given year, uh, and I've been doing this now for about 30 years, uh, a bit more than that, I teach uh, first-year students. And the, the course uh, that I teach uh, to that class is called Dante's Hell and its Afterlife. So the focus is mostly on the Inferno uh, in translation and then uh, Dante's legacy, how uh, later uh, creative uh, people have uh, responded to Dante in various ways. Uh, then I get to teach an upper division undergraduate class uh, on Dante's Divine Comedy. And that class would be uh, a bit smaller, about 20, usually about 20 students. Uh, the first one, uh, the, uh, the first year student class would be maybe uh, 50, 60, 70 students, uh, as many as 150 sometimes. Um, and then I also get to teach each year uh, at least one graduate seminar on Dante. So a small group of older students, uh, students who are pursuing the doctoral degree in our Italian studies program will take a Dante class with me. And they're obviously half of those students will probably be from Italy, native Italians, and half of them will be uh, from the United States or other places around the world. Um, and so they are obviously at a much more advanced level. And we will read the poem uh, in Italian and uh, discuss it in Italian or English, depending on the class. So those are three different classes I teach and, and a very, very wide variety of students. And as you know, Al, I mean, my own background is a bit unusual. I came from the <laughs> math science side of things when I was an undergraduate at Duke University. Uh, my major was computer science and mathematics. Um, but I think, as I mentioned before, half of my courses uh, were in the, I guess we'd say the humanities and liberal arts side of things, uh, many of them with an Italian focus. And my senior year, uh, when I took a Dante class on Dante's Inferno with a, a wonderful uh, professor, Wallace Valley, uh, that kind of got me started so that after I graduated and worked for a few years as an actuary uh, in Hartford, Connecticut, I then decided I needed to go back to graduate school and finish this journey and, and become an Italian professor. Who that would have made me go back to graduate school. <laughs> <laughs> Dante. So uh, all of that is to say that I really enjoy having students 
coming into my class, not just from the humanities or even the, the liberal arts, but who are coming from engineering and business and all these different uh, parts of the university and getting them excited. It's exciting for me to have those types of students because they have a different perspective. Uh, but I, I hope it's exciting for them, too, to have a chance to study uh, this great this great poem. Um, let me, I, get, get. I find nothing more exciting than a student who is not a history major mm. who falls in love with something that we're doing in class. Right. I, mean, you, I, I, I don't know why. I, I, I'm sure maybe I'm hating myself as an undergraduate, <laughs> but I, for some reason, it's very, very thrilling. Exactly. Exactly. And again, they, they really enrich, enrich the class. So um, given that that very diverse audience, I'd say, you know, one of my main principles, and this is all, all through my teaching, is to meet the students where they are. In other words, I, I, I can't assume that they have great knowledge that they've read Dante obviously but they that they've even maybe read a lot of, uh, of literature of this type uh, uh, they're coming from very different places um, they may not know much about some of the religious background that Dante is going to draw on from the Bible and other sources they may have no awareness of all of the classical traditions so it's my job in, in many ways to sort of find out where they are and to meet them as well as they can and as you know that's a, that's a big reason I, I created the Dante world's website and many of these other resources uh, so students and, and even people uh, around the world reading Dante who are not uh, in, a, in a school can can sort of uh, learn along uh, with uh, with me and, and others, uh, you know the uh, the richness of this poem. So Could you describe, um, get, uh, describe get, what Dante Worlds is. Yes, how, how the... yes. Dante Worlds is a, a digital project. Initially, we built it here at the University of Texas between 2001 and 2005, and it's a uh, it's, it's a website. It's an open resource website. Anyone can use it, um, and it, it basically has my commentary on the Divine Comedy. So you get all of that that background information, that encyclopedism of Dante, um, but it's presented in a visual format, and I think we'll talk about this when we get to the passages uh, for today's uh, discussion. Dante is an incredibly visual poet, and as T.S. Eliot uh, famously said, uh, you know, his main goal, or one of his goals, is to sort of make you see what he saw, or what I would paraphrase as make you see what he says he saw <laughs> in, in his journey through the afterlife. Um, and so uh, to help students with that, uh, the Dante World's website is structured uh, geographically. In other words, you see an, an image of the Inferno or the Purgatory, the Mountain of Purgatory, or the Celestial Fears of Paradiso. You click on a region, and you get this integrated multimedia experience where you get the textual commentary, but you also get the, the, rich, uh, the rich history of visual representation of Dante. Artists from Botticelli uh, down to the present day have, have often engaged with Dante in very creative ways. And so the website includes a lot of art, including original artwork by, by Suloni Robertson, the graphic design artist and, and painter for my website. And then you also get some audio. Um, even when I was learning Dante as an undergraduate in a course taught in English, uh, the professor Wallace Valley did what I do and what we're going to do today is have a, a facing page edition. In other words, have a have a very good translation of Dante, but on the other side of the book, you know, have the original Italian because even if you don't know Italian or haven't studied Italian, uh, if the professor knows or the teacher knows the language, uh, they can pick, pick out some of those words and sort of show you the nuance uh, and the, uh, the richness of what Dante is doing. And you can talk about the translation and how it may or may not be capturing that. Uh, but it's I think it's imperative and and so I had to learn when I was an undergraduate famous lines in Italian that I can recite today and still talk to my college friends about on the phone. And we can remember some of these lines. Uh, a, a good one is, which is a vulgar one, which is he made an he made a trumpet of his ass, and so these these were famous lines that we uh, we had to learn. It was it was punishment. It was homework. No, it was fun. Um, and so my students do that too. And so yeah, so having the original is very very important, as we'll sort of see today. Um, but meeting students where they are, not uh, not presupposing that they have all this background information, is certainly one of the principles of all my teaching. But much more important for a writer like Dante. So how do you uh, how 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 long does it take to assess where students are? Uh, right. How do you how do you how do you do that? That's 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 easily said. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and and, we'll, and this gets to the comprehension, you know, component. I think of of our, of our discussions today as well. Um, you know, some of it is very. I, I, I try to do some sort of diagnostics maybe early on, even the first day of class. Well, I'll just sort of ask some basic things. What comes to your mind when you hear the word Dante or medieval or afterlife? And so, you know, we will then have a discussion. Somebody might say, oh, I think of the Aeneid. <laughs> and so, oh, I'll know that student is, you know, is probably studying classics or has had some exposure. That's probably going to be a very minority view today, you know, in my classes. 
Um, and so I, I get a sense maybe from some of the responses there. Um, I do a lot of what we call low stakes uh, sort of assignments writing where, you know, they're keeping a Dante diary. I tell them to keep mm -hmm. essentially a Dante diary. It's all online now, obviously, because of how we teach. Um, but this gives me a sense into sort of where they're coming from, uh, what they know and what they don't know. So it's it's really a trial and error sort of thing, Al, I, I, with some mm -hmm. diagnostics. Um, but I do get a, like I said, I, I assume that they don't have much. And then I, I go from there. Uh, and and, and I, certainly when I have those students who have great knowledge, whether it's of the Bible or whether it's of, uh, of Virgil's Aeneid, I will make good use of them uh, during our class discussions for the other students. Um, but, uh, but I think it, you know, I think it is my job to sort of figure that out as best I can and then to kind of meet them uh, where they are on that. The other thing I try to do, I, you know, I try to make clear to them from the beginning, you know, Dante's not just a, a monument. He's not just a museum piece. Um, you know, these, some of these older, these ancient texts, they're, they're living, you know, they're living documents. They've been important for so many other people over the centuries for different reasons across the ide ideological spectrum, uh, across the cultural perspectives and, and, and uh, artistic perspectives. And so, um, you know, they, they may not agree with Dante. And I, and in some ways I hope they don't on certain things. If they do, I would say they, they probably gonna have some major problems in their lives. So, um, so we're going to be exploring that throughout the semester ways in which Dante might be ahead of his times, but ways in which he's a person of his time and place. There are ways I'm going to show them in which he's reactionary. He's, he's looking backwards in some sense. Uh, and so, you know, we're going to, we're going to accept all of that. And, and that's the richness of studying something like this. It's not just to, to, you know, idolize Dante, worship, put him on a pedestal. It's to really engage with what he's doing and to resist. And that's fine. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I, I prefer a student who's going to say he hates Dante. <laughs> he hates this because there's passion. There's something there that we can work with as opposed to somebody who's just, ah, you know, fine. You know, let's just go. But, but one hopes that he has come to hate Dante after listening to Dante. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And, and, and they're, they're in my class. And so they're, you know, that's, that's going to certainly happen. Um, and, and that has not usually not been an issue. I'm amazed how many times at the end of a semester on, you know, the little evaluations we get, they say, you know, I came to this class, not really thinking I was going to like it much or get much out of this, but wow, you know, this was really important. Or, you know, even though this was really weird to me, you know, I found it incredibly, incredibly helpful and useful. So yeah, it's a, it's an educational experience is the way that I try to uh, give it to them. And, and also that Dante is a model for that in some sense. So study and Dante can be a model because you're bringing together so many fields of knowledge in one place. Um, and you're right, of course, you can't be an expert in every very every nuance of it, uh, nor was Dante, but it really helps you to sort of see the interconnectedness of bodies of knowledge so that the math computer uh, engineering person can sort of see things in Dante as well as the person who's doing something uh, in a different, uh, different way. Okay. So um, just to uh, speak a little further on the comprehension thing, uh, you as Dante as the poet who was trying to make us see what he says he saw. Right. Uh, he's not describing the beach. He's not describing <laughs> a putting green. He's not describing a football field. He's describing really visually complex places. I mean, crazy places. And that's the challenge to him. That's the challenge he sets himself as a poet. Um, and there's a beautiful, you've chosen the first of our passages, mm -hmm. uh, is from Inferno, um, Canto 34. Right. Um, and uh, I, I just say that if listeners now would stop and pull up Digital Dante, um, mm -hmm. where they can find, uh, we'll have a link to this in the show notes, so you can go down there and click on it. You can find the Italian on one side and the um, Mandelbaum's uh, English translation on the other. Uh, and where are we where, where are we going to begin, uh, first guy? What, what uh, verse? So we're going to actually. I'll start reading uh, in line seventy. I think it's seventy okay. through eighty-one, and then we'll just jump down a little bit to eighty-eight through ninety-three. So seventy through eighty-one uh, in the uh, and I have the Mendelbaum book in front of me as well uh, is where we're going to start. Okay, go ahead. So uh, just uh, just before I read it, just to tell the reader where we are, we're on the ninth circle of hell, the final circle of hell, and uh, Dante divides it into four areas. These are traitors. And the first area, Caina, traitors against kin, named after Cain from the Bible. Uh, the second area was Antonora, uh, named after Antonora, uh, kind of a minor figure in, the, uh, in, in Virgil's uh, Aeneid. And this is for traitors against their homeland or party. Ptolemaea, traitors against guests or friends. And now we're in the final section of the Ninth Circle, Judeca, named for Judas, and so traitors against their benefactors or leaders. And so we are. We have just uh, we have just met Lucifer, uh, who has oh. obviously betrayed God. So benefactors, 
And uh, Lucifer had these three faces. Uh, Dante uh, presents him as a perversion of the Holy Trinity. And in those three faces, three mouths, he is munching on three arch traitors. Uh, in the middle mouth, as you might expect, is Judas, Judas Iscariot, who betrays Jesus. But in the two side mouths, and this tells us everything about Dante's political philosophy, <laughs> are Brutus and Cassius, the assassins of Julius Caesar. Uh, so Dante is punishing them uh, for assassinating Caesar. So that tells us that Dante was very much in favor of the Roman Empire, the dictatorship that will then lead to the Roman Empire. Um, anyway, so and, and now they have to get out of hell. And this is the scene we're about to read. And it's when Virgil has to sort of uh, grab onto Lucifer's shaggy body. He is presented as this gigantic figure uh, with a fur coat. And uh, Dante has to, I guess, get a piggyback ride. He's, he's on Virgil's shoulders. Virgil is holding Dante. And Virgil has to, um, I guess, repel might be the word, sort of down mm. the body of Lucifer and will eventually have to do sort of a switch uh, in direction. And so that's what I'm going to read. It's a confusing part. That's why I've chosen it. And as, as you said, Al, uh, citing Elliot, we have to kind of imagine, we have to see this as almost a little movie uh, in our own heads. Uh, so just imagine this as I read it. I'll read it in the Italian and then you in the English. So, come a lui piacque, il collo avvinghiai, ed il prese di tempo e loco poste. E quando la li fuoro perde assai, appigliò se alle velute coste. Di vello in vello, giudicese, poscia, tra il foto pello, croste. Quando noi fumo là dove la coscia si volge, appunto un su grosso dell'anche, lo duca con fatica e con agoscia, vosse la testa velia delle zanche, e aggrappossi al pel come om che sale, sì che inferno i credea tornar anche. And that's the Italian. How do you want to do the English then first? Yes, I do. Just as he asked, I clasped him round the neck, and he watched for the chance of time and place. And when the wings were opened wide enough, he took fast hold upon the shaggy flanks, and then descended down from tuft to tuft between the tangled hair and icy crusts. When we had reached the point at which the thigh revolves, just at the swelling of the hip, my guide, with heavy strain and rugged work, reversed his head to where his legs had been, and grappled on the hair as one who climbs, I thought that we were going back to hell. Thank you. And, you know, I would have a student, I, I, I would read sometimes myself, but I would often have a student read passages out loud, I think. And, and I know you've talked about this uh, in terms of comprehension with Daniel Willingham, but the importance of, of oral practice, right, even for comprehension uh, in reading, you know, something uh, students learn in elementary school and beyond. But uh, it's really important uh, to actually sort of have somebody say those words. So, Al, uh, what do you see, I guess? Maybe, can I ask you? If, if yeah, you, yeah, you absolutely. The, student, well, what the, do first you thing, the first thing, and I, and I know I'm, I'm, the first thing I've Notice when I looked at even Digital Dante, it's very obvious there are 34 cantos in, in mm. Inferno, and there are only 33 in Purgatorio and 33 in Heaven. So I noticed that first. Okay. And this is the 34th, This is which is odd to me. Uh -huh. um, uh, then the first thing I notice, uh, the very first thing I notice, is that... Um, He's it, it's exactly like a video game. <laughs> He's waiting for the when the, the chance of time and place and when the wings are open wide enough. Right. It's that thing you see in every action movie these days where there's this very curious place where there are anvils and they have to get through the anvils. It's not clear in Galaxy Quest, they, the movie, they make, a, they make fun of this. Uh, why did they ever include this in the ship? Right. Um, but there they are. So there's, those are the first things I notice. Uh -huh. The shaggy flanks, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the icy crusts. Um, and then, of course, the um, he re the reversal, right? Uh, when he reverses, um, and that's confusing to me. I don't understand what's going on there. Right, anymore that, just as Dante doesn't. That's right, and that's and that's great, and that, that's one reason I chose this because Dante himself is confused, and he's going to ask for some clarification in a little bit from Virgil, and so we're going to have to unpack this ourselves. So, in, in essence, this is one of the lessons of the entire Divine Comedy from the very first line of the Divine Comedy: "Nel mezzo del cammino di nostra vita," in the middle of the road of our life. Dante very, very intentionally chooses the plural pronoun "our life." He doesn't say "my life," he says "our yeah. life." So we are joining him on this journey, and we are in his in his position sometimes. So as he is struggling to sort of unravel this, it's, he's modeling in essence for us as, as we have to struggle to unravel this. So let's go back just to that moment. So what I would point out here to the students is that, yes, we're going down 
uh, Virgil is rappelling down the body. He's coming to what this, I don't know, the middle of the body where the hip is somewhere, right? The swelling of the mm. hip. And then he's doing, he's reversing his head to where his legs had been. So Virgil reversing his head. So Virgil is doing a, a flip or somersault, you know, something where he's kind of, you know, going from having his head on top to his head on the bottom, right? Something is sort of reversing there. And then he's still without letting go and without dropping Dante, presumably, right? And then Dante is saying, I thought we were going back in hell. In other words, Virgil has started to climb again. He was going down and now he's climbing again. Are we going back to where we just were? You know, he's a little sort of uh, confused about that. So I'm just going to jump down a little bit further down. Virgil gets off of Lucifer's body and he kind of sets Dante on a ledge. So now they are kind of the body is off to the side and they're on a a rocky ledge and then Dante looks up. And so I'm going to read from line 88, if that's okay, Al, 88 mm -hmm. to 93. And then you can sort of read the English. So Dante says, this is this, uh, the Dante uh, character speaking. Io levai gli occhi e credetti vedere Lucifero come io l'avei lasciato e vidi le gambe in su tenere. E se io divenni allora travagliato, la gente grossa pensi che non vede qual è quel punto che io avea passato. Why don't you read that? I raised my eyes, believing I should see the half of Lucifer that I had left. Instead, I saw him with his legs turned up. And if I then become perplexed, do let the ignorant be judges, those who cannot understand what point I had just crossed. So he's letting us know that there's some sort of incredibly important point, uh, a geographical point that they have sort of just passed through so that as they were going down Lucifer's body, Virgil had to change his direction and start climbing it's almost a paradox, climbing down the body. Uh, and then when they get off of the body, Dante looks back. And remember I said that he was looking at the three faces of Lucifer, right? He was looking at those three faces with Judas, Brutus, and Cassius. But he now looks back and he thinks that he's going to see that again because they started climbing again, right? Climbing that he thought in, in, was going back where they came from. But he doesn't see the three faces. He sees Lucifer's legs sticking up in the air. So there's been this complete reversal. So if we think of hell as in the in the earth right going down mm -hmm. through the through the uh through the actual planet earth they've just crossed through i guess what would we call it the center of gravity center, center point of the earth yeah center point of the earth which you know in a very rough you know kind of way would be thought of as the center of gravity so what you know what don virgil had to be repelling downward but then they get to this moment this point in the center of gravity which happens to be lucifer's belly button more or less right at the midpoint mm -hmm. of lucifer's body and then he has to start climbing up and now they have a completely different perspective so if we think of and the students would know this from earlier if we think of hell as in the northern hemisphere dante places the entrance of hell he, he he associates it with Jerusalem, but he puts Jerusalem not where we would see it on the map, but kind of at the top of the world, kind of the North Pole sort of issue. Now they have gone from the Northern Hemisphere through the center of the earth into, again, the Southern Hemisphere. And so everything is going to be reversed. And what's the time? Is it 12 hours? I guess the time difference is going to be 12, is 12 hours difference. So Virgil will actually say, well, it was evening back there and now it's morning here. Um, and so everything now is the opposite of what it was uh, before. So it's a, it's a difficult passage, as you said. Uh, you can unravel it, but you have to sort of put yourself in Dante's shoes and he sees those legs uh, sticking up. Did, so did I explain that in any way that yeah. makes sense to you? Yeah, it, it makes sense. It right. makes sense. Um, it's, uh, I love this passage because it shows Dante is a really good science fiction writer, uh -huh. a hard science fiction writer. Right. Um, he understands something about gravity, right. which is really, he understands, I mean, we'll see eventually in Purgatory that he realizes not only just the time difference on the mm -hmm. other side of the world, mm -hmm. he understands there are different constellations. You see different stars on the other side of the world. Right. Um, I, I've, I, I came to expect students to be really surprised that some medieval guy would figure this all out. Right, right. Um, of course, they, they many of them still have this idea that it was Columbus who figured out their world was round or something like that. Right, right. Um, now, Dante's not your average medieval guy, mm -hmm. uh, but it's still very, very – it's it's profoundly clever and interesting that he, he arrived at all these conclusions. Um, the um, – how – this is an awfully hard – thing to understand if you're reading alone mm -hmm. um 
can Dante only be read with by having a commentary in one hand or interlinear commentary or having Dante worlds on your iPad while you read along? I mean, doesn't that kind of ruin reading? I, yeah, I, I think it could. And, and so I would always tell my students, um, probably just read it through at first. You know, I, mean, I would say this with anything, you know, whether you're reading J James Joyce's Ulysses or, you know, any other sort of difficult text, you know, get what you can, you know, see what you can get. And in part because, um, yes, you're not going to understand everything the first time, but you might pick up on some things uh, that you might otherwise not not see. You know, if you're sort of just reading the commentary first, you know, you're not going to sort of you're not going to get your own mind working through it. Um, so even if you're making mistakes along the way, or if you're not getting parts, I, I always think it's sort of helpful to sort of just try. Okay, I'm just going to see what I can do on my own here, just just reading the text as best I can. But then you're right, Al. You're going to need you're going to need some help. I think in this case, what what I would offer here is the uh, getting back to the visual. So the way I would I'd be teaching this, if, if we're in my class, I would have uh, I would have the Dante World's website, but basically now I'd probably be using a PowerPoint with some of the material from the website onto the PowerPoint. This is just much more efficient. And what I would show them, I'm looking at, right, at it right now as I'm talking to you, I would show them one of the many illustrations of Lucifer and Virgil and Dante going down the body. And Botticelli has a wonderful one, and your hmm. listeners could, could look at that in Dante Worlds. And you see Virgil and Dante climbing onto the body, you know, up in the top of the body, around the arms. Virgil is sort of uh, going down, tuft by tuft with Dante on his back. You see this midpoint, Botticelli has, has actually drawn a very perfect circle kind of around the middle of Lucifer's body and you're getting to the middle of that circle. And then you see the flip, you see Virgil sort of flip down and now he's still going down toward the legs. But then, and this is the beauty of digital technology. And I realized this when I did the website, I took Botticelli's image of Lucifer standing upright and what did I do? I just did, you know, the the, the flip. <laughs> I, mean, I flipped the image over the way we do with a, a JPEG or an image sometimes that comes out the wrong way or the PDF or something. So I flipped it upside down. So now what you see are those legs standing up. You're seeing the legs at the top of the screen and head at the bottom. And that's exactly what you just read, right? What Dante says mm -hmm. he sees. Now, the beauty of that is, and this is where we get to a, another level of comprehension, we know about intertextual relations. We know that, you know, to understand Dante, sometimes you have to know the, the reference from Virgil or from the Bible, some other text outside of Dante. But what's beautiful about an epic poem, and the Divine Comedy uh, certainly is, is a great, great example of this, is the intertextual richness of the poem. In other words, something that we've seen before in Dante, he's now reminding us of. And, and this is where the Italian comes in play. The word for legs, when we're talking about Lucifer's legs that Dante uses in the Italian side, and I could actually point, go back to it. I think it's in line, it's in line 79. Uh, he turned his head to where his legs had been. And his legs could be Virgil, but it could be Lucifer. And I think it probably is. It, it's ambiguous in terms of the pronouns. And the word for legs is zanke. That's the last word in line 79. Mm -hmm. And if you just did a concordance or just did a quick search in one of the Dante databases for zanke, there's only one other time you'll see that word used. And that one other time, significantly, is when he was talking about the evil popes, the Simonist popes, way back in, in oh, Inferno yeah, 19. Right. And he was talking about, he sees Pope Nicholas III who's buried upside down oh, yeah. with his legs sticking up. And so the image that you have when you go back to, uh, I think it's verse 43 of Canto 19, uh, Dante refers to him uh, him uh, kind of writhing, his legs were writhing, and the word he uses is zanka, the singular form of zanke. And so in a very, very uh, subtle, but I think very uh, significant way, Dante is rhyming in essence, or he's repeating Lucifer now from that earlier pope. Another way we could say it is that Lucifer is essentially this evil pope writ large, right? He, yeah. Dante is, is making a commentary on those popes back in uh, Canto 19. That was in the, uh, the Bolgia or the, the subcircle of fraud for simony for the, for the priests and for the religious leaders who had uh, adulterated, who had corrupted the church in various ways. And for Dante, that would be a very grievous uh, sort of sin. And so it's Dante's way of commenting on the papacy and the ways in which he he's very pro-papacy, obviously, pro-Catholic uh, pro, uh, pro in terms of his religious ideology, but he's very, very harsh on the popes who he sees are, uh, are betraying that, uh, that, that sacred trust. And so Dante is essentially using Lucifer to remind us of the image of the Simonist Pope. So I would, you would put those next to one another and you would sort of get the, uh, the critique that Dante is sort of leveling uh, through uh, Lucifer. So that's subtle, but I think a significant... Well, that's, that sounds like now we just had a dist distinction between... That's, that's this kind of comprehension issues in your graduate seminar. 
Well, right. I, I would do it from the first year students too, though. We would, oh, yeah, okay. yeah, oh, absolutely. No, because we're reading it with the Italian and, and we've spent a lot of time on Canto 19. And so, and I've been talking about Boniface VIII is Dante's arch enemy. He's the Pope uh, who is responsible for Dante's exile. Boniface is not dead yet, but uh, he is prophesied to arrive in hell and to actually be the next pope in that hole back in Canto 19 with his legs sticking up. So that's the image everybody will always have of Boniface VIII. So Dante has basically just equated Boniface, his his arch enemy, with the devil, <laughs> with Lucifer. Mm-hmm. So you know that's a point the students get, I think, you know, fairly powerfully, even even at the earlier uh, stages. Yes, the graduate students could do it with, on their own with the Italian. Uh, I would have to walk through uh, the uh, the steps uh, with the uh, with the undergraduate students. Students, uh, the first year students, um, but it's a great idea. I, I think it's a great example of what Eliot is talking about, though the visual poetics and how, mm-hmm. by seeing what Dante says he saw, you not only understand this idea of going through the center of gravity, and now we've gone into the southern hemisphere, but you also understand how he is uh, he is enhancing or enriching his commentary on the on, on the Pope that he loves to hate so much uh, through this uh, through this image. Well, speaking of the Southern Hemisphere, and uh, let's leave hell and go to Purgatorio. Uh, You've chosen uh, Canto 1, beginning at verse 1. Let's do that. Right. Yeah. This is the beginning of the canto, right, and then we'll jump to the end of the canto. So we are now out of hell, and uh, and now this is the way Dante introduces the second uh, cantica, and the second realm, Cantica refers to the uh, to the text itself, the poetry of Purgatory, and then the uh, the second realm is the the mountain of Purgatory. He says, "Percorre miglior acque, alza le velle o mai la navicella del mio ingegno, che lascia dietro a sé mar si crudele, e canterò di quel secondo regno dove l'umano spirito si purga e di salire al ciel diventa degno." That's the Italian. To course across more kindly waters now, my talent's little vessel lifts her sails, leaving behind herself a sea so cruel. And what I sing will be of that second kingdom, in which the human soul is cleansed of sin, becoming worthy of ascent to heaven. Right. And what, what do you get from that one, Al? This one is a little more straightforward, I gather, right, than what we just did? Yeah. Um, yeah, this one, uh, in fact, I comprehend too easily. <laughs> so, but uh, when I'm so, let me imagine myself. I would say that um, the the things that uh, obstacles to my comprehension uh, that I can imagine uh, to, to uh, are, are metaphor. Mm-hmm. The metaphor of the first three verses um, that's that could be difficult these days. Right. Um, and then, of course, the second three verses, uh, the second kingdom. What's that? Mm-hmm. Cleansed of sin, worthy of ascent to heaven. So all the references to purgatory right. also, uh, in, uh, those are unfamiliar theological references. So I would say metaphor and theological references would be the, an obstacle to comprehension there. Right. And I would probably be uh, introducing, now I would not be teaching this in the first year course because we're focusing mostly on the inferno and its legacy, but for my upper division. Uh, class, we would uh, obviously spend as much time on purgatory and then on paradiso as we do on inferno. And so I would always give them, probably uh, not so much for the inferno, but certainly for the purgatory and even the paradiso, a little introductory, you know, lesson, probably not Mm -hmm. right away. I'd probably give them some of the material first, but then I'd give them a little bit of the the history of purgatory. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Could you explain that pedagogically? Because I think I like, I like that. I would, I would do that too. Yeah. Right. So I I think, I think we're on the same page here. You know, again, going back to the inductive, so to speak, I, I really prefer to sort of have them take this journey, uh, this educational journey. Uh, and, and that means they have to sort of experience things along the way and, and, and get the material when it's most useful to them. Um, so obviously, I want to give them enough uh, background material so they can sort of understand what it means uh, for Dante to sort of more or less put purgatory on the map. Um, and so I will give them a little mini lecture. Um, but I also want it to be uh, to be sort of integrated with their reading experience. I, I want it to be organic. I don't want it to be sort of this, this top-down sort of thing all, all the time. Uh, and so just to give you a quick example of this a little bit later on, Dante writes to Vita Nuova, his, his first, his earlier book, his young life about his love with Beatrice. And many teachers would probably, introduce, if you were teaching a, a comprehensive Dante course, you might start with that uh, because that's a young Dante. Um, I will not have my students read that, even my graduate students, until we get to the point in purgatory when Dante reconnects with Beatrice and we start to get some of the material from that Vita Nuova. And then I'd say, okay, now let's go back and let's read that earlier work uh, because I think pedagogically it's much more effective. I don't think they would really stick with them or it might not really 
uh, help in the, in the same way that it does when they've already sort of had some exposure and then could sort of read back, read back and see how Dante has almost rewritten his earlier life to sort of incorporate it uh, within his later, later life. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I, I love that, that feature. And that's really, that's really, uh, I wish I could do, do something like that immediately mm-hmm. um, because that um, you're wanting them to first have an intellectual problem. Uh, rather than provide them materials for solving a problem before the problem occurs. Right. That's right. Yeah. And, and, uh, go on. No, going back to where you, what you were saying about those first six lines, though. So those, those, the first three lines, as you said, the metaphor of the ship, and, and obviously the voyage is the overarching metaphor for the whole poem, right? Dante is on this voyage uh, from the very beginning of the poem through the afterlife. Uh, but now what, what's happened is the poem itself has become the voyage, right? He says, my talent's little vessel lifts her sails, right? So Dante mm-hmm. is, he's talking about uh, his talent, his creative genius, as if it were a ship, right? And it's lifting mm-hmm. its sails, leaving behind a sea so cruel. So the inferno now becomes a, a sea so cruel, right? He's using yeah. the metaphor. And this is very epic, obviously. It goes back to Jason and the Argonauts and the, the first well, it, sea voyage. It, it, yeah. Intertextually, Intertextually. It, it reminds me of Ulysses. Very much. You, Ulysses, uh, who we meet in hell, mm-hmm. uh, who is uh, as a basically someone who had deceived his friends, mm-hmm. um, which seems unfair, except then you realize the whole story, this is some, I, I don't know where this legend comes from, some of the subsequent mm-hmm. um, Greek myths, but that Ulysses had, had gone on what he couldn't resist, he had to go on one last voyage. Right. And he, what we now, what we're about to, we're about to discover, we now know where he was. He saw the Mount of Purgatory, right. he went to the other side of the world, and then was capsized by a storm. Right. And here, I think this, this is, I'm going to make my intertextually, this is um, Dante is where Ulysses found a storm. Dante now finds kind waters. That's, that's uh, his his voyage his voyage is ending successfully, unlike Ulysses. That, and that's great, Alan. You've anticipated as, as good students do. You've anticipated <laughs> where the teacher's mm-hmm. thinking because if we go, I don't know if you want to do that now. We can go to the end of Canto One. Yeah, let's do that. And I think you're going to see some of that intertextual. Uh, material at work with Ulysses. So these are the last, uh, I guess, seven lines, because um, just, just so our, our listeners know, uh, Dante writes this poem in the vernacular, in Italian. That's kind of revolutionary. Uh, he doesn't write it in Latin, as he well could have. He writes several other works in Latin. And uh, it's a poem, which means he has to adopt a certain sort of rhyme scheme for it. He invents Terza rima, third rhyme uh, for this uh, for this poem. In other words, A B A B C D C D C. You have this, this these little groups of three where the middle verse rhymes with the first and the third of the next tercet, and then the middle verse of the second tercet with the first and third of the next one. So it's kind of a chain. It really very propulsive, kind of moves you through. Um, but then to tie it all up, uh, you have to have sort of an extra verse at the end. So every every canto, even though the number of verses varies, is going to be a multiple of three plus one. And of course, that's a, a wonderful sort of numerical sequence for the uh, for the Holy Trinity, three and one uh, sort of idea. So Dante gets his theology and his poetry going together. So I'm reading the last seven lines, and I say seven because we have two groups of three, and then that extra line to get the three plus one. He says, "Venimo poi in sul litto deserto che mai non vide navicar sue acque, omo che di tornar sia poche esperto. Qui vi mi cinsi, si come trui piacque." Oh, maraviglia, che quale li scelse l'umile pianta, cotalsi rinacque subitamente la onde la delse. Then we arrived at the deserted shore, which never yet had seen its waters coursed by any man who journeyed back again. There, just as pleased another, he girt me. Oh, wonder, where he picked the humble plant that he had chosen, there that plant sprung up again, identical, immediately. And I guess those first three lines, uh, is that where you were thinking, Ulysses, never seen yeah. the waters by anybody yep. who journeyed back again, right? Mm-hmm. And, and Ulysses, just so our listeners know this, this is the, uh, the story Dante tells in Canto 26, probably one of the yeah. two or three most famous episodes of the entire Divine Comedy, uh, where he encounters uh, Ulysses with his sidekick, Diomedes, a Diomede. And they are together in this flame, uh, this forked flame. And uh, Virgil has to be the one who asks. He asks Ulysses, tell me where you went to die. And that's the story you were mentioning earlier, Al, where Ulysses tells of this final voyage. uh, And it ends when he comes upon this mountain, uh, which Dante has now arrived at himself. And that's when Ulysses' ship is turned around three times and eventually goes down under. And he and his men uh, perish at the end of Canto 26. So, again, a very famous scene. And here we have... 
uh, basically, without Ulysses being named, I suppose, right? We mm-hmm. don't have his name, mm-hmm. but, but I think you see all of the bits and pieces. Yes. So then, of course, the, the last four lines, I, at the moment, must admit, I have absolutely no idea what he's talking about. Oh. He girt he girt me. Right. The humble plant. What is what is this? Right. So this is right. This is where we probably would need a little bit of a note. Though I, what I would ask you is again, I think we've talked about this maybe even in the last podcast. Remember, Dante was wearing a cord, right? In yes, that's right. I, I remember you you were struck by that. And if the cord, well, it's the uh, cord. it's yeah. anyone who's like anyone who <laughs> well, anyone who knows a little bit too much about medieval Franciscans as I do right. uh, knows the uh, there's the, the often cited connection that that this might indicate that uh, Dante is a third order uh, lay Franciscan perhaps uh, when he dangles when Virgil d- dangles the cord around uh, Dante's waist dangles into the abyss so that right. the monster can can swim up or something like that right so again that's that's a great piece of evidence and as you know Dante will have a, a canto devoted to Saint Francis in the Paradiso as well. So all of the, you, you obviously know much, much more than I would ever expect any of my students to know about Franciscanism and Dante's association with it. Uh, but I would give them some of that information. And so they remember that chord. And I, I think you probably agree it would be associated in some sense with humility, right, with St. Francis. Mm-hmm. And so here we have this humble plant. So even before we know the reference, Virgil is clearly, uh, he's been told, again, we haven't read the, the verses between the, end, the beginning and end, but they've been told by Cato, which is another story. <laughs> we have a, a classical figure, a pagan, who is the guardian of purgatory. So just to, to, just to throw out an example of how, how out there Dante can be, how provocative he can be. But the, uh, the Roman, the Roman uh, statesman or military uh, hero, Cato, is the guardian. And he's told Virgil to take Dante back down to the water's edge because they've started up the mountain a little bit and to clean him up and basically to, to pre- prepare him to meet angels and divine presences. He has to he has to be appropriately uh, clothed and also uh, has to be clean. And so uh, Virgil is following Cato's instructions here. And he's basically picking, I guess we'd call it maybe a rush or a reed, you know, some of the plants that mm-hmm. grow in the in the in the water, in the mud uh, at the edge uh, where the beach meets the sea. And he's plucking this plant and he's going to uh, girt, he's going to wrap it around Dante's body to almost replace that Franciscan-like cord. And that is supposed to be a sign that Dante is ready uh, for his uh, his journey up the mountain of purgatory. It's going to require a lot of humility on his part as he undergoes the various uh, trials uh, to uh, cleanse himself, right? He has to go through Mm -hmm. the same process. But the reference, um, and this is where uh, the classics come in and somebody maybe who's read the Aeneid might know this, uh, if I have that kind of student, is a very famous scene, again, because Dante is often using Virgil's descent of Aeneas into the underworld in Book 6 of the Aeneid as a model. It's a very famous scene where Aeneas, to gain entrance into the underworld, uh, he has to present to Karen, I guess the Sybil is his guide, but she has to present to Karen the golden bough. She has to get this this branch, this very special, it's a talisman. It's going to be sort of the sign that Aeneas has the right as a living person to actually go into the classical underworld. And so I would tell the students this story, or they would read it in Dante Worlds, of how Aeneas is guided by his mother, Venus, her, her, her birds, the two doves sort of guide him through the forest. And he comes upon the tree with the golden bough. And just like in Dante, when Aeneas plucks off the golden bough, another one grows immediately back. Hmm. And so you have this idea of renewal. And then that is the magic, the talisman that Aeneas is able to give to the Sybil. And she's able to present to Karen. And that enables the ferryman to take Aeneas. So he's playing off of that earliest scene. So he's not only reminding us of Ulysses, but he's reminding us of the anti-Ulysses from Virgil's perspective in the classical myth. Aeneas is, is the pious one, whereas Ulysses is the deceptive one uh, from the Roman uh, story's perspective. And so uh, that is the and, – and it's a wonderful image because it's an image of what? Growing back, renewal. Arinakwe yeah. is the verb. It's, um, it's also Dante. Maybe he's also playing around with classical stories to mm-hmm. uh, do Christian theology. Uh, there's a way in, in which also you think about purgatory is beyond death now. Right. Um, so therefore to pluck a reed, to kill it is now Im- is impossible. Mm. Um, it cannot be killed in this place. Um, uh, so therefore there must be something that immediately takes its place. Um, I, I don't know how this works, but it's like there, there can, there's not there, there's not death even of a marsh reed. Well, and that, and Al, that's not something I had thought about. So that's that's exactly what I would love to happen in my classroom, right? When, yeah. when the student sort of comes up with an angle that maybe I'm not even thinking about, and then we sort of go on uh, from there. You know, so it's another level yeah. of comprehension. 
Um, and the other, the and, other thing is a, a biblical reference. Um, people in the Old Testament are always girding themselves, girding their loins, right. which is basically putting on the jock strap. Right. Um, right. Uh, tying up your cloak. And there's a way in which uh, Dante, these this will be in a greater challenge even than hell. That's right. Uh, because he parts of him are being uh, purified. Uh, right. All parts of him are being purified. Right. So he's girding up his loins like a man right. and to, to ascend the mountain of, of purgatory. And so even before I'd given my little mini lecture on purgatory, uh, what, what we'd be able to say right now is, okay, well, we know purgatory is about this cleansing, this purification uh, and and so and re, and re, rebirth on some level, right? That that's mm-hmm. going to be sort of a, a theological basis for this idea uh, of purgatory as we sort of go up the mountain. And then I would probably give them some of the background and how it's it's a medieval concept. It's it's very vaguely sort of uh, you know kind of alluded to perhaps in the Bible, but not really there. And so it's something that uh, tells us a lot about the Middle Ages and sort of this idea that you have this middle realm uh, of purgatory where where the uh, spirits are saved. They're going to heaven. There's no going back. They can't mess up. They're not going to end up in hell, uh, but they have to purify themselves to make themselves sort of worthy of going on to uh, Paradiso. We talked about this a lot in the last podcast about about purgatory as being this wonderful realm because you have the reciprocity of the living and the dead. Uh, And I know personally for me, that's a a very, very moving sort of concept. Um, I love love purgatory in some ways because purgatory, at least having, you know, read it only like two or three times, uh, I think purgatory is 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 now <laughs> in some sense purgatorio is dante's way of describing what actually goes on on earth um mm-hmm. it, it's much more uh but anyway um let's uh, move on to the final selection okay uh it's paradiso the first the first canto of paradiso so which which, which verse is so i think i'm jumping into uh kind of the middle it's line 64 to 70 um 72 i think it is yeah. and uh the reason i'm going here is um, when you start reading Paradiso, um, you have an invocation, you have, you have some of the usual epic uh, material to the beginning, um, which is fascinating if you think about it. Here we are in the, in, you know, at the, the final realm of the Christian afterlife, and the first thing Dante says is, oh, good Apollo. <laughs> so <laughs> it tells us right away that he's not leaving the classics behind, right, even as he's moving nope. into this world. In fact, we're going to see another example in a second here. Uh, but the moment we're about to read is when he actually ascends with Beatrice. She's now his guide, Virgil is gone as guide Beatrice has replaced him at the end of the purgatory. And uh, they are still on the top of the mountain of purgatory, which is where the uh, terrestrial paradise or the Garden of Eden essentially is. Dante has gone back in time uh, to the original Garden of Eden, a place of of purity and innocence, and uh, and is now uh, ready to ascend uh, to the stars. And so this is happening as uh, as I read these verses in line 64, and then you read them in English. He says... Beatrice, tutta nelle eterne rotte, fissa con le occhi a stava, e io in lei le luci fissi, di lassù rimotte. Nel suo aspetto tal dentro mi fe, qual si fe glauco nel gustar dell'erba, che il fe consorto un mar delle altre idee. Trasumanar significar per l'erba non si porria, però l'esempio basti a cui l'esperienza grazia serba. This is going to be a harder one, Al, so why don't you take it in English? The eyes of Beatrice were all intent on the eternal circles. From the sun I turned aside, I set my eyes on her. In watching her, within me I was changed as Glaucus changed, tasting the herb that made him a companion of the other sea gods. Passing beyond the human cannot be worded, let Glaucus serve as simile until grace grant you the experience. So before we go into Glaucus and who, who the heck this guy is, can you get anything from this at all? Well, this, is the, this, this is the problem people always have with Paradiso, isn't it? I uh-huh. mean, because as difficult as everything else was before, uh, this is uh, it's, this takes it all the way to 11, <laughs> uh, maybe 12. Uh, so the uh, right from the beginning, we've got the intent on the eternal circles. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, wow. Beatrice is uh, looking, right? It's her yeah, eyes. Beatrice is intent on the eternal circles from the sun. I turned aside. And I set my eyes on her. So I, uh, the eternal circles, what, what are they? And what's, what's going on? Well, before that, let's, let's just say, so who's looking at whom? What do you see? Yeah, if, you, right. if I asked you to sort of just make a, a mental image in your head, you see Beatrice looking up, right? Or, you know, mm-hmm. looking up circles. And then what, where's Dante in relation to her, I guess? That- He's, he would seem to be next to her. Right. He is looking at something else. And then, and he then he turns to look at her. Okay, and so that that's key. So let's just keep that in mind for a second. So she's looking up. She's not looking at him, right? She's looking up, right? But he's looking into her eyes. 
So, okay. so imagine this kind of, I guess, triangular kind of situation. You know, her, mm. her gaze is going up. His gaze is going into her eyes. So he would see – if her eyes are mirrors, literally, right, he would see kind mm. of a reflection of whatever she's seeing. But he's not looking directly himself, right? He's not looking up at the eternal circles, right? He was. He was looking at the sun, but he couldn't do that anymore. He doesn't want to do that anymore. So now he's turning aside from that and looking – at her now, my students would since we've already read the Purgatory, they would re, we would have spent a good amount of time on a scene at the top of the mountain of Purgatory when Beatrice is looking at a griffin. She's looking at this uh, this wonderful creature that's half lion, half eagle, uh, that is very very uh, christological. It's it's representing the two in one idea of Christ as both human and divine at the top of the mountain. And Dante doesn't look at the griffin. He looks at her eyes as she's looking at the griffin. So this idea of indirection, this triangulation, Dante can only apprehend these greater things, whatever they happen to be, hmm. indirectly through Beatrice. So I guess we would call her some sort of um, mediatrix, right, as she's between yeah. him and something else. You know, she's sort of performing that role. And that's going to be a – we're going to see a scene like this frequently throughout the Paradiso where she's experiencing something more directly – but he can only apprehend it really through her until the very end when he's then going to be able to, and that's going to be the, the sign that he is at a much higher level, will be able to experience uh, these uh, these divine phenomena uh, directly, if that makes any sense. Right. So this is, um, it's saying something about, of course, he's he continually is pounding home something to us about the mortal mortal and the divine. Right, right. Yeah, which is which is why he does the next two cantos too, I guess. I mean, the next two um uh, uh, sets of verses, yeah. Right, right. And that's where, and, and without even knowing who Glaucus is yet, we see that there's some transformation going on, right? Mm-hmm. Glaucus is, is tasting the herb, so he's eating something that makes him then a companion of the sea gods. And then Dante uh, says, well, you can't, you can't even put into words what it means to pass beyond the human. Let Glaucus be an example for you until you, until you experience it. Unless it happens to you, you just don't know what I'm talking about, basically, right? It's kind of what mm-hmm. he's saying here. But that's where we would look through, uh, look to Glaucus, and uh, you know, and I would give I would give the uh, the reference uh, in, in Dante worlds or other notes would sort of do this, and we learn this is from Ovid. And so, if we're talking transformation, well, what better place to go than Ovid, right? Uh, all of the metamorphoses, and it's one of the stories uh, where somebody is transformed from a human form into something else. Glaucus has. Uh, eaten some of the grass that is uh, seems to be animating the fish that he catches. He catches fish from the sea. Uh, he pulls them up onto the uh, onto the nice grass. They nibble on the grass and then they jump back into the sea. And so he says, "Hmm, something's going on uh, with this grass or this, these herbs." And so he tastes it and he jumps into the sea. And Ovid then says he was then welcomed by the other sea gods and became one of them. He becomes sort of a divine figure, you know, some sort of minor god himself. So it's a, it's a process of of moving beyond, as you said, mortal and divine. This is sort of the transition, right? Going from mm-hmm. the mortal realm into the divine realm. And Dante's telling us, that's what I have to do here, at least provisionally. Mm-hmm. I have to sort of go into a new, I have to become at least temporarily somehow uh, divine so that I am worthy and able to ascend through these celestial uh, spheres. In a Note to me, you draw attention to a neologism. Um, yes. Dante, does Dante have many? Uh, he must have a lot of Italian neologisms. An incredible amount, Al. And in fact, one of the fun things you, you can do sometimes is you get into Italian dictionaries and you look up words and then you see, first used by Dante. <laughs> it, it, happens, <laughs> so it's, it, it happens a lot. But, so it's very, like, very much like Shakespeare in English. Right. So, but, yeah. and I don't have the exact number in my head. The uh, I think you know there are I don't know you know maybe maybe fifteen or twenty in the inferno I don't know thirty or forty in the purgatory oh it's going to be like one hundred and eighty in the paradiso so oh, yeah. as you move into this realm and, and people have written wonderful studies of this as you move into this realm these uh, neologisms 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 become much more uh, frequent and many of them are, are 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 not as dramatic they might just be uh, uh, like taking a word like the, the number three and make it into a verb, to in three oneself, a reflexive sort of <laughs> verb. And so that's an, it's technically a, a, a neologism, but it's, you know, it, it's not really a surprising one. This one is, and I, I, I would spend a lot of time the first day we talk about the Paradiso on this, because the word is trasumanar. And even if you don't know Italian, tras, it's like trans, right? Uh, going beyond umanar, going beyond the human. And I think the translator was probably correct not to give us one word, but to say passing beyond the human. So Dante is saying that he has to trazumanad, he has to go beyond the human in order to uh, experience this uh, this celestial 
uh, journey. So, uh, so it's not just a neologism, but it's actually a meaningful one, right? Because it's telling us sort of what the essence of Paradiso is. It's actually going beyond the human. We're going into this sort of divine realm, a realm where you have to invent the language to describe it. And so mm-hmm. you're not going to have the language. So as we read, uh, go ahead. Yeah, the attentive student should also realize by now, if they've gotten through the previous uh, uh, Inferno and and Purgatorio, they understand this is a very typical, to my mind, a little bit of um, dry Dante wit. Mm -hmm. Passing beyond cannot be worded, Mm -hmm. and he's about to spend another 32 contos (laughs) Uh, exactly. One, yeah. one of the most enjoyable entries that I wrote for Dante Worlds, uh, I came up with the phrase poetics of failure. So, <laughs> so, so poetics means it's intentional, right? It, it's sort of, it's what defined, it's like T.S. Eliot saying Dante's visual poetics. It's sort of a strategy of the poet himself, right? But the strategy is failure. So in other words, Dante is going to spend an incredible amount of uh, space, a uh, number of verses. We're going to get to a time in Canto 23 and eventually in Canto 30 where he has 18 verses in a row. So six tercets in a row telling you how he was not able to describe how beautiful Beatrice was when she smiled. Mm-hmm. And what does that tell you? Well, she must have been really beautiful. <laughs> um, and so this poetics affair becomes a strategy, right? To uh, It's almost like reverse psychology, I suppose, right? It's a strategy to impress upon us, in fact, how amazing this place is uh, by telling us what he's not able to do. So we don't have – our language is inadequate. It's, it's, not, it's not up to the task of describing it. This is beyond the human experience of language. Well, we should uh, probably start wrapping this up. Okay. Um, when we, were, I was uh, reading this stuff and, and telling my wife um, uh, what I was about to do, she said she wanted me to ask you this question, yeah. which uh, occurred to her a lot. Um, and we don't get to her biography, but when she was mm-hmm. starting out sort of her intellectual life, uh, she kept asking herself, why should I just not stop mm-hmm. if I know I'm not understanding everything I'm reading. Mm-hmm. It's written by someone with an entirely different view of the world. Mm-hmm. Why don't I just stop? <laughs> um, she talked to, eventually she happened to run into this uh, Russian intellectual who uh, said to her, well, of course, when she said, I'm afraid I won't understand it. I won't, don't want to start that reading that book. He said, of course you won't understand it. <laughs> uh, but you will understand some things and then you will keep reading. And then the second time you will understand more, um, which is pretty good advice. Um, but what, what would you say to someone who's saying, gosh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm starting Dante. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand it, but I just can't understand everything I'm reading. So I just, why bother? Well, certainly, I mean, I, I would say, I mean, I've been there. We know the reason I ended up going back to graduate school is I was uh, reading the purgatory on the bus on my way to work as an actuary. And I thought, (laughs) well, I'm I'm getting, I'm getting a lot out of this, but I really want more. Right. I, you know, and Mm. so I need, um, if not a guide, I certainly need a structured environment. And, and so one of the beautiful things about some of the things today is that we, we have access, right, to so many resources to sort of help mm-hmm. us. But, but, I, but I mean, I agree with your wife and, and, and the advice that she got. I mean, that um, you, you want to keep coming back to it. I mean, I teach this, Al, once some, I read this once, sometimes two, three times a year for the last 30 years. And I'm not bored. I don't think I know everything about it. Um, I'm still finding new things. Uh, you know, sometimes That's on my amazing. own, sometimes I, I very rarely, you know, sometimes I just go through the motions. I, I have to prepare this canto for class tomorrow. I just read it. I get it together. You know, I know I can do it. But when I really, you know, have the, you know, I'm, I'm in the, a good space to, to, to prepare and I just read it apart from preparing for class, I always find something. Why, why didn't I think of that before? Huh? Now, now that I know that, and the more, you know, maybe it's one of those processes I'm, I'm thinking, I'm working this out as we talk, but maybe it's one of those processes that kind of the, the more, you know, the more you, the more you get to know, in other words, mm-hmm. you, you, you then start to make connections that build on things that you've done earlier. So, you know, that I think is a, a great intellectual joy, a great pleasure, right. To sort of be able to sort of come to those things. Um, but you do have to get into a mindset where it's okay not to get it all. But I think with somebody like Dante, you have to say that no matter how, how often you do this, no matter how much you read, no matter how much you know, uh, there's always going to be some mystery about it. And I think, well, for one thing, I think that's the beautiful of creative works to begin with. And poetry mm-hmm. certainly is that, right? Uh, mm-hmm. That it's always open to uh, in, in interpretation. Um, I always love, I'm going back to T.S. Eliot just for one second, I always love what he said when someone said, what did you mean by this, sir? And he said, well, this is what this person says I meant. In other words, he didn't even want to, uh, you know, want to sort of pronounce. It didn't matter, you know, anymore. He, he wrote the poem and, and now it was out there uh, for the world to kind of engage with 
uh, in, in ways that he might not have imagined. And you just have to sort of make sense of it. So I think that's the beauty of, of this. The, the uncertainty and some of the partial knowledge, I think, is a, it should be an inspiration to, to, to go on. You know, it, it strikes me you know, as we're talking about this, and I was thinking about the need to reread and mm. understand more. Of course, the way that we teach uh, doesn't uh, doesn't really mm. allow that. Right. Um, you know, it's a it's a Socrates would have a lot to say to us about that, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. or some other some other rebel um, teacher. Right. Uh, that uh, what we should really be doing in a good class at the University of Texas is that. Uh, everyone should be reading the Divine Comedy like three times in the class. And then maybe it wouldn't be over, but the class would be at an end. Right, right. Um, but to, when we when we uh, set things up, as we do, uh, bounded by semesters and months mm-hmm. and years, um, we give the impression that, okay, you've do- I've done Dante. Right. Right. And it's uh, and that's a that's a very bad lesson. Right, right. And just just to maybe one final comment that that is very dear to me is because I study Dante's legacy so much. You know, you read Dante and then you say, well, yeah, but I'm interested in I don't know, I'm interested in African American literature and Ralph Ellison and Toni Morrison. Well, they 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 use Dante in a lot of their works, and so then it, it moves you to sort of read their works or Longfellow or somebody else or some po- popular culture. Um, some of the best writers today, Karen Russell, Swamplandia is a fantastic uh, novelist, and you know chapters of her book uh, are, are very much indebted to Dante. So it becomes part of this cultural heritage, and it can take you to other places. You don't have to even just stop with Dante. Uh, you can sort mm-hmm. of go on into these other very, very rich uh, areas. I know that's part of the excitement uh, for me as I, as I read and reread Dante uh, over and over again. Well, Guy, thanks so much for joining us yet again. And uh, it, it mentioned uh, to listeners that uh, his book, Dante's Bones, How a Poet Invented Italy, is well worth a read. If you haven't heard our podcast, go to episode 183 in the Historically Thinking Archives. You can hear about this, the invention of Italy in the mind of a poet. Uh, Guy, again, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Al. It was great talking to you again. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.